Hello, and welcome to the Lemon Tree Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Allison Sukameli. Each week, I'll be taking the science of positive psychology, adding a little humor, and through evidence-based research, providing you with tools and strategies to help you live a life of peace and purpose. In this episode, we'll be talking about the letdown effect, hope and optimism, sleep, and resilience. And teachers, you may also want to check out The Lemon Tree by AKS on TPT, formerly known as Teachers Pay Teachers. I'm constantly adding resources and lessons each week, several of which I mention on the podcast. For instance, as we move into summer, I updated my morning routine template with an inspirational quote section. And anyone can use the free resources, so again, check it out on TPT. My shop name is The Lemon Tree by AKS. And if you see one of my favorite quotes, Let Nothing Dim the Light That Shines From Within by Maya Angelou, you are in the right spot. You can also find a link in the show notes at thelemontreecoaching.com under the resources tab, as well as some other free stuff. So check it out. And if you'd like some daily inspiration, you can also follow me on Instagram at thelemontreecoaching. And thank you for all the kind comments and the inspiration that you give right back to me. Okay, let's get into it. Welcome back to an all-new episode of the Lemon Tree Coaching Podcast. The podcast took a little hiatus last week due to my being very under the weather, which interestingly enough led me to one of the topics for this week, and that is the letdown effect, which is a real psychological, physical phenomenon experienced by a lot of people. Essentially, the letdown effect is a condition that leads to illness or symptoms following stressful events, such as a conflict, high-pressure, time-constrained work projects, or school exams. And don't exclude positive events from this list either. This could include sporting events, weddings, graduations, and teachers wrapping up the end of the school year. And true to my word, I still went to my therapy session for the week, Granted, I was beginning to feel better, but I think the prior week I was at the beginning of getting really sick, it hit hard, and then next session I was just starting antibiotics and slowly improving, but my therapist did point out this phenomenon in which we finally get to relax after a stressful period of time or a stressful event, and then illness occurs. So why is this? According to a psychologist and assistant clinical professor of medicine at UCLA and author of When Relaxation is Hazardous to Your Health, Mark Schoen, which is spelled S-C-H-O-E-N, says this effect has been associated with conditions such as upper respiratory infections, the flu, migraine, headaches, arthritis, pain, and depression. And while it is important to note that people respond differently to stress and show or don't show post-stress symptoms, in the medically reviewed article, Suffering from Letdown Effect, Post-Stress Illness, Paul Roche, and it's spelled R-O-S-C-H, MD, and president of the American Institute of Stress and clinical professor of medicine and psychiatry at New York Medical College, agrees that when individuals are subjected to chronic stress, Some of them are going to show physical or psychological effects even after the stress itself is relieved. And Anita Wang, MD, adds, in reality, our bodies often hold up quite well until we finally relax and slow down. People are most susceptible to the letdown effect after stress or excitement passes. 
The letdown effect is the equivalent of going from 100 miles per hour to a dead stop in a car. It's not good for your car, and it's not good for your body. That really puts things into perspective. And Dr. Wayne goes on to say, most people would assume that our bodies get sick while we're in the midst of a stressful event. And this is true in some cases, but oftentimes our body is able to protect itself during peak stress, then becomes susceptible to attacks when the worst is over. While we are under stress, our bodies produce a number of chemicals, particularly stress hormones, that protect our immune system against illness. However, once the stressful period is over, our immune system eases on its heightened state and viral or bacterial invaders are often likely to take hold. And as a result, people often come down with a cold, a cold sore outbreak, or a flare-up of autoimmune issues. And how do we avoid letdown effect? Well, according to research, it is important to lower your stress gradually after the stressful event has come to a close. And I'll be honest with you, this one sounds really counterintuitive to me, and I immediately ask the question of how do you do this, especially in cases of unexpected stressful events. So let's go back to the metaphor of that car that is going 100 miles per hour and comes to a dead stop. Doing so is not good for your car, nor is it good for your body. And the research states that it is important to gradually lower stress, which helps our bodies transition to a new balance. But wait, again, how do we achieve this? They recommend that once your stressful event has subsided, try engaging in other intense physical or mental exercises, then slowly taper down to relax. And this could be through physical exercise or mental exercises, which you can slowly taper off into this relaxed state. Another way to avoid the letdown effect is to make sure you are getting enough sleep. And kind reminder that getting enough restful sleep is your immune system's way of restoring its strength and getting the essential support that it needs. Sufficient hours of restful sleep enables a well-balanced, adaptable immune defense that efficiently responds to vaccines and results in less severe allergic reactions. By getting regular restful sleep, we prevent ourselves from being more susceptible to even the common cold. And just because we come into contact with cold germs doesn't mean that we will automatically get sick. If our immune system is efficiently restored through restful sleep, well-balanced, and capable of fighting off viruses, we don't get sick. And according to Sheldon Cohen, a psychologist at Carnegie Mellon University who's an expert when it comes to studying the common cold and has been doing so for decades, says there's evidence that people who don't get enough sleep show higher levels of inflammation. Of course, other factors can come into play when it comes to susceptibility, such as age, smoking, chronic stress, and a lack of exercise. And a great book to take a look at if you want to learn more about sleep is called Why We Sleep, Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams by Matthew Walker, Ph.D. Dr. Walker is a professor of neuroscience and psychology at UC Berkeley, the director of the Center for Human Sleep Science, and a former professor of psychiatry at Harvard University. And if you don't have time to read a 300-page book or it's just not your jam, you can also check out his TED Talk, Sleep is Your Superpower, as well as some other shorter TED videos from the series called Sleeping with Science. 
And if you are interested in some short lessons related to some of these videos, you can check out my TPT shop called The Lemon Tree by AKS. I'll leave links to all the videos in the show notes, which, which can be found at thelemontreecoaching.com under the resources tab. The National Sleep Foundation recommends that adults get at least seven hours of restful sleep per night, and children and teens need even more. In fact, Dr. Joshua Rowland of the UCLA School of Medicine and UCLA Health says that people between the ages of 14 to 18 years old should be sleeping 8 to 10 hours a night, and those ranging between 25 and 90 years old should be sleeping 7 to 9 hours a night. And I actually attended professional development with Dr. Rowland back in July of 2021 on sleep and wellness. In his presentation, the data and infographic on how many hours a night one should sleep according to age is broken down into smaller sections, and for purposes of this podcast, since the age groupings between 25 and 90 listed the same number of hours per night, which was 7 to 9 hours, I grouped those together. However, of course, certainly in sleep and wellness studies, the three groups you find within that lump are most likely studied separately, and the impact of poor sleep weighs differently according to a variety of factors. Generally speaking, the impact of poor sleep may result in decreased alertness and cognitive functioning, increased rate of mood disturbances, substance abuse, endocrine dysfunction or hormone imbalance, the impact of poor sleep can also alter one's pain threshold, make people more susceptible to dementia or Alzheimer's disease, can affect immune system function, heart rate variability, elevated blood pressure, cardiovascular events, so things like heart disease or stroke. It can affect glucose metabolism and obesity and sexual dysfunction. All of this again according to Dr. Rowland. He also reiterates what Dr. Walker says in his TED Talk, that it is extremely important to keep your bedtime and wake time the same every single day, including the weekends. I know that part about including the weekends tends to really prevent buy-in from both high school and graduate students alike, but I tested this out myself last year, and it really does work to the point of I found myself waking up before my alarm both during the week and on the weekends because my body was in tune with my internal 24-hour clock, it was getting eight hours of restful sleep at least most of the time, and I really was waking up with natural daylight and going to bed at the same time each night. When the time changes, there's a bit of an adjustment period, but for the most part, this is what was happening. Now, I'll be honest with you, since I am not currently working at the high school and I am not bound by the hours of the school day and can set my own work hours during the summer, this is both a blessing and a curse, I don't always abide by getting out of bed at the same time each day. And honestly, having been sick really threw me off. I had started the summer keeping to my usual schedule without the plan of breaking it, but being sick, experiencing that letdown effect, has completely thrown me off my game, but I'll have to pay closer attention now that I'm feeling better and see if I'm getting up at the same time each morning, even though my bedtime has shifted to a later hour. The biggest part of this being a curse will be adjusting back to the earlier work hours. That's always a bit painful. Of course, when you're not feeling well and need to recharge, it's okay not to follow the rule of keeping your bedtime and wake time the same. Your body is telling you what it needs, and if more restful sleep is necessary to heal and recharge, so be it. 
It is only a problem if the behavior persists after you are well again and restful sleep is not occurring on a regular basis. However, keeping your bedtime and wake time the same seven days a week also strengthens your circadian rhythm or your internal clock and allows the body and mind to get a good sense of when you should be asleep. And from personal experience, I can say that this really does work. And Dr. Roland also notes that we can't always control when we fall asleep, but we can control when we wake up. And Dr. Walker recommends that if you can't fall asleep after laying in bed for 25 minutes, get out of bed and do something else because our brain makes associations and has learned the association that the bed is this trigger of wakefulness and we need to break that association. By getting out of bed, you can go and do something else, read in another room, do some push-ups or sit-ups, and then you'll be fit on top of rested. But remember to avoid screen time in order to get that restful sleep that did not occur in the first place. And once you've done that other thing that did not involve a screen, only return to bed when you're sleepy. This way, your brain will gradually relearn the association that your bed is this place of sound and consistent sleep. Roland recommends to remain judgment-free about your sleep, except that some nights will be better than others and be patient with yourself. And a way to avoid the letdown effect is to make sure that you're getting enough sleep. Another way to avoid the letdown effect is to avoid alcohol and caffeine. Roland says alcohol may feel like it relaxes you, but it actually disrupts sleep and worsens other sleep disorders such as sleep apnea, and it also reduces our REM sleep. Excessive alcohol consumption can be dehydrating and usually contains high amounts of sugar, which is naturally inflammatory to the body. And aside from sleep, when it comes to weight loss and addiction, research has shown that there is definitive proof that sugar is addictive. A great read on sugar and dieting is why diets fail because you're addicted to sugar. Science explains how to end cravings, lose weight, and get healthy by Nicole M. Avina, PhD, and John R. Talbot. And I do need to disclose, even though I'm not being paid to mention the book, nor does she know that I am mentioning the book, um, but Dr. Avina Blanchard was my professor at Toro University Worldwide during my doctorate program and taught applied cognitive psychology and is an excellent professor. She never mentioned the book during class, so I'm not sure if I read it in her bio somewhere or if I discovered it on my own, but she is a neuroscientist and food addiction expert, and her research has shown that sugar triggers the same responses in the brain as addictive drugs like cocaine, nicotine, and alcohol. And Why Diets Fail lives on my bookshelf next to The How of Happiness by Sonia Lubomirsky in Rainbow Order, which is an organizational method developed by the gals from the Home Edit, which is another book on my shelf within the Rainbow Organization that makes me think of the chakras, which is also the pattern of my yoga mat, which exists on the floor beneath the books. Just to give you a little bit of context. Anyhow, moving forward, in terms of caffeine, Walker discusses research done by NASA in his book, Why We Sleep, and briefly, NASA essentially exposed spiders to different drugs and then observed the webs they constructed. The drugs used in the study included LSD, speed, marijuana, and caffeine. 
Researchers found that when spiders were given caffeine, they seemed incapable of constructing anything that appeared to be a normal or logical web or anything that would be of functional use to them, even relative to the other drugs used in the study. And you can see a visual in Walker's book or the original article found in NASA Tech Briefs from 1995 titled, Using Spiderweb Patterns to Determine Toxicity. There is a clear and shocking visual difference that can be seen in the webs and when compared to one another. And Walker points out that caffeine is a stimulant drug and is also the only addictive substance that we readily give to our children and teens. He says a good rule of thumb here is to try to stay away from caffeine in the afternoon and in the evening. And Roland adds, caffeine outside of the morning has the potential to make it very difficult to sleep. Avoid the use of caffeinated drinks in the afternoon and evening, such as coffee, tea, soda, and energy drinks. Another way to avoid the letdown effect is to keep nasal passages moist. Dr. Wang recommends using a saline spray and spritzing throughout the day to ensure your nasal passages are able to block germs from entering the body, and saline is naturally disinfecting. And other things you can do, and I just went through this when I was sick, and don't worry, I'll spare you the details, but I am certainly washing and cleaning everything, but to avoid what I went through and keeping those nasal passages moist, side note, hopefully you don't turn off the podcast, but I know, and I'm thinking of someone in particular, the word moist sparks strong dislike, which I find curious, but there have been studies done on this. The word does not bother me in the least, but I have encountered in life many individuals that have extremely strong reactions to this word, and one study consisting of 2,500 participants found that only 18% of them hated the word moist. Other studies say that the dislike of the word comes from being socialized to believe the word is disgusting, while another says it is one of the most hated words in the English language. To this, I shrug. Anyhow, to keep those nasal passages moist, drink more water and be sure that any beverage intake is low in sugar or sugar-free. Thank you, Dr. Avina. We know that this can cause dehydration and result in drier nasal passages and your mouth. We want both moist. You can also use a humidifier in your bedroom, especially during the winter months. I just tried this during my most recent illness, but I waited too long and was far too gone for any positive effect. Also, a warm bath may help for a period of time, but the double-edged sword here is that long, hot baths can also dry out your skin. Of course, you can moisturize, but be mindful if you choose to engage in a warm, not hot bath. And another way to avoid the letdown effect is to manage your stress, which there are a bunch of ways to do, and not every way will work for everyone. So sooner rather than later, figure out healthy and adaptive ways to manage your stress. Roland recommends exercising daily, which has shown to help with sleep. However, he does not recommend exercising within a few hours of bedtime, as it may make it harder to sleep. Also get some natural sunlight. Sunlight is one of the main controlling factors for circadian rhythm. Roland recommends getting a little bit of sunlight, particularly in the morning, to help keep your circadian rhythm healthy. Also avoid long naps. Naps tend to make us less sleepy at night and cause us to have a harder time going to bed. They have a tendency to throw off our internal clocks 
and worsen nighttime sleep. Roland recommends if you do need to nap, keep it less than 20 to 30 minutes. In managing your stress, if you have trouble sleeping, remember to remain judgment-free about your sleep and accept that some nights the quality of your sleep will outweigh other nights. Don't stress about sleep. This only serves to worsen things. And Roland says to avoid checking the clock or what he calls clock watching. And many of us have the tendency to look at the time if we cannot sleep at night. And this only further stresses us out and does not help us get more sleep. He also emphasizes again to avoid any activity in your bed that is not sleeping, such as being on your phone or watching TV in bed, which takes away from your ability to sleep in that environment. These devices are also stimulating and give off blue light, which can make it harder to fall asleep. Instead, develop a good wind-down routine about an hour before bed. Be sure to put the phone and computer away. I know I have issues with this as well, and try to do something calming, such as a mindfulness activity like journaling to help you process your thoughts and emotions, meditate even if just for a few minutes. You can always build your way up or do some light reading to help your body shift into the appropriate mindset for sleep. So again, in order to avoid the letdown effect and stay healthy and happy, get enough sleep, avoid alcohol and caffeine, keep nasal passages moist, 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 and manage your stress. Of course, you are not going to be able to do all of these things at once, so figure out what works for you as needed. I know people who can drink a cup of caffeinated coffee before bed every night and fall right asleep. So if that's working for you, don't change it, unless of course if it's medically necessary. But if you are struggling with sleep, take a look at your current bedtime routine or see if you even have one and see if you are engaging in any of the behaviors that detract from a night of restful sleep. Of course, if you have a sleep disorder or think you may have one like sleep apnea or narcolepsy, these quick and simple tips will not work for you and you should speak with your doctor for next steps and develop an action plan to improve the quality of your sleep. If you are not sure if you have a sleep disorder or not, first and foremost, speak with a medical doctor. But some signs that may indicate a sleep disorder include snoring, sleep is not refreshing, You may experience a lot of daytime sleepiness. You have trouble falling asleep and or staying asleep despite having a good bedtime routine or sleep hygiene or incorporation of good sleep tips. You experience unusual or injurious behaviors during sleep and you have trouble controlling your blood pressure. Again, if you are experiencing one or more of these symptoms, speak with your medical doctor regarding a possible sleep disorder. And if you are concerned about obstructive sleep apnea or OSA, you can visit the official Stop Bang Questionnaire website. The Stop Bang Questionnaire is designed to screen for symptoms of OSA, and it is really simple and can be taken online at stopbang.ca, that's S-T-O-P-B-A-N-G dot C-A for free. Of course, this is not to be considered a formal diagnosis of any kind, and if you have any questions, please speak with your medical doctor. Next, let's shift into our next topic, which is hope, and of course, we'll be looking at hope through the lens of positive psychology. 
Positive psychology is the study of human strengths and flourishing. That's my definition. And when it comes to hope, as defined by C.R. Snyder, hope is goal-directed thinking in which the person uses pathways thinking or the perceived capacity to find routes to desired goals and agency thinking or the requisite motivations to use those routes. Essentially, a pathway is a plan or a strategy that people believe will lead to a goal. In this case, a goal can be anything that an individual wants to get, do, be, accomplish, or experience. Goals, of course, exist on a spectrum ranging from small to large, short-term to long-term, mildly ambitious to extremely ambitious. And such goals should also be attainable because a crucial element when it comes to being motivated to pursue a goal is the expectation or hope that the goal will actually and eventually be attained. And according to Hope Research, hope is the belief that your future can be better than your past and you play a role in making this so. This is the single most important factor in trauma recovery. And when it comes to optimizing hope, there are two factors, the first being the quality of your thoughts related to the situation, and second, coming up with multiple pathways to achieve the same goal. And there's a great book called Hope Rising, How the Science of Hope Can Change Your Life by Casey Gwynn and Chan Hellman that explore this much deeper if you are interested. And if we look through the lens of IO psychology or industrial organizational psychology, which is basically the study of how people work at work, according to a Gallup poll, employees who strongly agree that their leader makes them feel enthusiastic about the future are 69 times more likely to be engaged in their work. And there's another book that may be worth checking out when it comes to cultivating hope through strengths-based practices, and that is Learned Hopefulness, The Power of Positivity to Overcome Depression by Dan Tomasulo. That's spelled T-O-M-A-S-U-L-O. And the foreword is by Scott Barry Kaufman, which is a clear indicator that this is a book worth reading. And according to the research, there are four different types of hope. They include realistic hope, utopian hope, chosen hope, and transcendent hope. Realistic hope is hope for an outcome that is reasonable or probable. One example of this could be a 12th grade high school athlete who sustained an injury while playing their sport. This could be a soccer player who has broken their leg or a football player that has broken their clavicle, both of whom I have had in my class with the hopes and dreams of getting a scholarship to play in college or even just play their sport in college. So in this case, the athletes suffering from their injuries might hope for a speedy recovery, but also know that a complete return to how they played their game before may be unrealistic. The window for the scholarship may be gone and even a spot on the team, but hope allows them to have an honest understanding of their situation while still being open to the possibility of a positive change or outcome. And next, utopian hope is defined by Webb as a collectively oriented hope that collaborative action can lead to a better future for all. And examples of utopian hope include, but are not limited to, hope within a political movement in which the hopes of a particular group are clearly articulated and new possibilities abound. 
Chosen hope is hope that helps us live even with impossible circumstances and an uncertain future, such as a terminal illness or living through a war. Chosen hope is critical when it comes to managing despair and taking action, even when doing so may feel hopeless. Chosen hope can help to regulate negative emotions and maintain hope, even when limitations and obstacles seem insurmountable. And finally, transcendent hope, sometimes referred to as existential hope, is defined by Eves, Nichter, and Rittenbaugh as encompassing three types of hope, which include one, patient hope, or a hope that everything will work out in the end, two, generalized hope, which is hope not directed towards a specific outcome, and third, universal hope, which is a general belief in the future and a defense against despair in the face of challenges. And transcendent hope represents a general hopefulness that is not connected to a specific outcome or goal, or in more simplistic terms, it is the hope that something good can and will happen. And if we revisit the VIA Institute on Character at the viacharacter.org, they say that hope involves optimistic thinking and focusing on good things to come. Hope is more than a feel-good emotion. It is an action-oriented strength involving agency, the motivation and confidence that goals can be reached, and also that many effective pathways can be devised in order to get that desired future. And I'm often asked, what's the difference between hope and optimism? Hope and optimism are related but distinct concepts. On the one hand, optimism refers to thinking and expectations, while hope relates to more successful goal setting. And each represents a positive outlook toward the future or an expectation that good outcomes are likely and will happen. And according to the VIA, optimism is closely linked with having a particular explanatory style, or how we explain the causes of bad events. People using an optimistic explanatory style interpret events as internal, stable, and global. And those using a pessimistic explanatory style interpret events as external, unstable, and specific. And if we want to pull pessimism more into the mix, which is a tendency to see the worst aspect of things or believe that the worst will happen, Winston Churchill sums up this lack of hope or confidence in the future by saying, the pessimist sees difficulty in every opportunity, the optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. There's also a funny college humor comic on dating. The left side of the comic has a square labeled optimist and the right side says pessimist. The couple is on a date sitting face to face at the dinner table and the thought bubble above the optimist says, oh, I really like her. I think I might fall in love again. While the thought bubble above the pessimist says, ugh, I really like him. Bring on the pain again. That's just awful. Anyhow, some self-reflection may do you some justice when it comes to dating if you're putting yourself out there and not having any luck. Again, it's just a comic, but food for thought as well. And you may also recall the film The Shawshank Redemption, and in particular, an interaction between Andy and Red in which the following interaction occurs. There are places in this world that aren't made of stone, that there's something inside that they can't get to, that they can't touch. That's yours. What are you talking about? 
hope. I didn't give you very much context there, but in case you haven't seen the film, I didn't want to ruin it for you, but instead wanted to encourage you to take a look at it. And if we tie this in with the past few weeks in which we have been talking about positive psychology at the movies and strength spotting in films, The Shawshank Redemption is one of the movies listed as an exemplar for hope. And research by Gallagher and Lopez found that optimism has a stronger impact on the well-being area of pleasure, and hope is more important for purpose-related well-being. Or as the reclusive poet Emily Dickinson says, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul. And C.R. Snyder championed and developed hope theory, and hope theory is when people have hopeful thoughts, they believe that they can find pathways to their desired goals, and they become motivated to use those pathways. And doing so positively affects their emotions and well-being. And if we relate this back to Barbara Fredrickson's broaden and build theory in positive psychology, the theory suggests that positive emotions broaden one's awareness and encourage novel exploratory thoughts and actions. And over time, this broadening behavioral repertoire builds useful skills and psychological resources. And in the case of hope, hope allows people to broaden their thought-action repertoire, which then builds more personal coping resources or resilience that the person can use over time. And if you are not yet a fan of the positive psychology movement and tend to equate it with the self-help movement of the 1950s, which persists today and includes a number of influential figures such as Norman Cousins, Stephen Covey, and Norman Vincent Peale, who write about different ways of improving one's life and finding happiness, some find their work to be important while others find it to be overly simplistic and sometimes unhealthy just to quote-unquote think positively, which of course to only look at the positive side of things would be toxic positivity. Again, nobody the elves here. We have to look at both the positive and negatives in life, and that's called balance, which is an essential element in positive psychology. And of course, research supports positive thinking and shows it to be beneficial for physical and mental well-being. But rest assured that positive psychology and the positive psychology movement, especially when when it comes to hope and optimism are much more dynamic than simply thinking positively and the positive psychology that I am talking about is the science and practical exploration of human strengths, which focuses on evidence-based conclusions and quantifiable results. And based on the research of today, hope and optimism have been shown in a number of studies to have multiple benefits, such as better task concentration in academic settings, better athletic performance, maintenance of physical health, illness prevention, adjustment to chronic illness, better pain management, higher self-worth, lower levels of depression, enhanced positive emotions, an expanded friend circle, and more perceived social support. And hope has been found to be one of the character strengths that correlates most with happiness in life. And most studies find it to be the highest or second highest life satisfaction strength along with zest. And that's according to Park Peterson and Seligman from 2004. And if you look at the VIA character strengths, you will find that the strength of hope falls under the virtue of transcendence. Hope is also one of the top four signature strengths that correlate with the life of pleasure, engagement, and meaning. 
And according to Park, Peterson, and Seligman from 2006, hope is a character strength found closer to the bottom of most people's strength profiles around the world. I thought this was very interesting. And hope is one of the most important strengths found in two military samples. One was done in the United States and the other in Norway by Matthews, Kelly, Bailey, and Peterson, and EID, which is spelled E-I-D, in 2006, and their study shows that hope tends to be higher in young adults and children than in adults in the United States. And the character strength of hope has also been associated with academic achievement in middle school students and college students, as found by Park and Peterson in 2009, and connected with a high curiosity amongst young adults and children. Or as Augustus William Hare says, curiosity is little more than another name for hope. And hope buffers against the negative effects of stress, trauma, and cognitive vulnerabilities, which are a set of beliefs or attitudes thought to make a person vulnerable to emotional disorders such as depression and anxiety. And let's return to strength spotting at the movies for a moment. We all know that happy endings are commonplace in Hollywood films, and directors like to leave viewers with a sense of hope and positive feelings. Sometimes endings are realistic, while other times they aren't so much. And as we've been talking about for quite some time now, in the book Positive Psychology at the Movies 2 by Ryan Nemec and Danny Wedding, they say that we can use movies to build character strengths and well-being. And here's a list of exemplars from their book that can instill the character strength of hope in the viewer. We've already mentioned the Shawshank Redemption, but to add to that list, we have The Grapes of Wrath, Milk, In America, Castaway, The Wrestler, The Cooler, Seabiscuit, Cinderella Man, The Legend of Bagger Vance, Chocolate, Joshua, The Wizard of Oz, Patch Adams, Hustle and Flow, The Sound of Music, Awakenings, Everything's Coming My Way, and The Diving Bell, and The Butterfly, to name a few. And oh my goodness, if you haven't gotten to The Diving Bell and The Butterfly, I highly recommend it, especially if you're interested in psychology. I actually have not seen the film yet, emphasis on yet, but I have read the book by Jean-Dominique Bobby, which is spelled B-A-U-B-Y. And in short, just to give you an idea of what the book is about without ruining it, um, in December 1995, Jean-Dominique Bobby, the 43-year-old editor of French L, suffered a massive stroke that left him completely and permanently paralyzed, which made him a victim of locked-in syndrome. So it's a fantastic book. It's unbelievable. It's beautifully written. And you will definitely come away with something that you will most certainly Uh, benefit from in your life or alter your perspective. It is important to note that hope can be improved upon. Pessimists can become optimists, and when one door closes, another door opens. Here are some practical applications when it comes to hope, and this is a simple exercise that you can do. Consider a negative event in your life that led to an unforeseen positive consequence and write down your findings. After you write down your findings, you can share these stories and experiences with someone you are close to and someone that you trust. You can also learn to set goals that are realistic, reachable, positive, and specific. 
You can use optimism strategically to improve your physical and mental well-being, as well as achieve your goals. And if you really want to dig in on how to do this, check out Learned Optimism by Martin Seligman. And another practical application is to create a hope-reminding feedback loop. You can do this by writing about hope experiences. You can link the hope displayed in movie characters with your own life or monitor your thoughts closely and record both hopeful thoughts and hopeless or helpless thinking. For example, one of my graduate students wrote the following in connection with hope and Bruce Lee's famous saying, be water, my friend. Here's an excerpt from what the graduate student wrote. They said, when talking about be water, I thought about the movie Memoir of a Geisha. She talks about the strength of water and how it will break stones to create a path. Our text notes Erickson posed dialects between hope and other motives, one of the strongest and most important being trust and hope versus mistrust, which is the infant's first task. She then leaves us with the following question to contemplate. How does trust play into hope and optimism as an adult knowing what we know? I'll give you the space to answer that question on your own. How does trust play into hope and optimism as an adult knowing what we know? Certainly, you can think of other books and films that exemplify hope or even lack thereof. And there's also a great TED Talk on hope called It All Begins With Hope with Juanita Flower, which is spelled J-U-N-I-T-A and then last name Flower, F-L-O-W-E-R. And another TED Talk on hope worth mentioning is How Hope Can Change Your Life with Amy Downs. Downs essentially shows how people can not only survive, but how they can thrive if they have a hopeful mindset and how the pathway of hope leads to all people creating a better future. And she was a survivor of the Oklahoma City bombing. But for me, the greatest example of hope is Eli Wiesel. Back in, oh, it must have been around 2010, I was fortunate enough to hear him speak or really be spoken about at Chapman University. But to be in Eli's presence was incredible. You could feel his presence in the room before you even knew he was there. I can't quite put it into words. And if you're not familiar with who this incredible person was, Eli Wiesel, which is spelled E-L-I-E, last name W-I-E-S-E-L, he was a Nobel Peace Prize laureate, Holocaust survivor and witness, author and humanitarian. His book Night is his Holocaust memoir and often is taught in high school English or social science classes. I recommend reading it if you have not already. And Wiesel has been described by most as being a person of exceptional humility and kindness amongst many other of the human strengths that we study in positive psychology. Eli demonstrates resilience in night by never giving up hope when it comes to surviving and the constant bouncing back when unimaginable things happen. Generally speaking, resilience is the ability to recover after something bad happens. Resilience and positive psychology refers to the ability to cope with whatever life throws at you. And some people are knocked down by challenges, but they return as a stronger person, more steadfast than before. And we call these people resilient. 
And HeartMath defines resilience as the capacity to prepare for, recover from, and adapt in the face of stress, challenge, or adversity. In order to explore your own personal resilience, there are some starter questions that you can ask yourself. The first being, what does resilience mean to you? How do you know if you are resilient? How do you know when you are not? And back in 2008, when I was getting divorced, I ended up sending out a mass email to people in my personal contact list explaining that I was in fact getting divorced. I'm not sure I would do that again today if this event was occurring right now, but at the time I was tired of explaining and re-explaining what was going on, but the one response I got that really resonated with me, and I still remember it to this day, was from someone that I worked with while I was attending Alliant International University for my master's in education. At the time, I was working the front desk in the evenings after working a full day teaching at a middle school in Santa Ana and taking classes at night. And this person that responded to my email was a graduate counselor, not mine, but we developed a friendship while we were working together, and he had a master's in psychology and was very much filled with wisdom, and this was long before my adventures in psychology and my pursuing my psychology degrees, but this person, and they know who they are, responded to my mass divorce email and told me, you are resilient, you will get through this. And this simple statement had such a profound effect on me. It was the first time someone told me I was resilient. And at the time, I was barely 30 years old. And something clicked within me that, yeah, I am resilient. People make mistakes and I will bounce back and be okay. And I've since shared this with the person that sent this email and expressed my gratitude for this simple life-changing email. So like strength spotting, we can do resilience spotting within ourselves, others, and in movies or books. And again, Eli Wiesel's Night is a good place to start if you are not sure where to begin. A lot of people have spoken to me about not bouncing back or returning to their normal after the pandemic, but something that you can do in this context is ask yourself this simple question. What is something that you could not do before the pandemic that you are now capable of doing? Of course, there was a lot of loss and change and terrible things that happened during or as a result of the pandemic, but instead of only focusing on the negative, take a look at the good that came from it, even if it was something simple like being able to spend more time with your family, slowing down and reading a book instead of going out, or perhaps you learned a new skill, and it could be something as simple as learning to Zoom. Most of us were not capable of doing that before the pandemic, and now, of course, some of us are oversaturated with Zooming, but I was so happy this past week that I was able to do a telemedicine visit with my doctor and get the antibiotics that I needed without having to go anywhere. So a definite benefit to change. And even my weekly therapy sessions are also on Zoom, which I didn't think I was going to like. 
I like to feel the energy in the room, but it really has worked out for me, and I love being at home for my sessions. Again, you just have to do what works best for you in each circumstance, but a good way to build resilience is to take a look at and reflect on some of the bad times that you have already bounced back from. If you find that you are stuck and haven't bounced back yet, you may want to reach out to a therapist and seek their guidance to help get you back on track. And if you are in crisis, please dial 988 for the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Building personal resilience is a transformational process in expanding self-awareness and understanding what energizes you and what depletes you. If you are not experiencing a serious trauma, you can also work with a coach to help build personal resilience. This is the stuff we should be teaching in school. And please note, resilience, self-awareness, self-care, and other things of this nature are not one-time exercises. It's important to develop an ongoing practice, figure out what exercises or activities work best for you, and build a life of resilience, peace, and purpose. It's all connected. Okay, let's take a look at an exercise that comes from the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley. This one is called Goal Visualization and ties back into what we previously were discussing in terms of hope being goal-directed thinking in which we use pathways thinking or the perceived capacity to find routes to our desired goals and agency thinking or the requisite motivations to use those routes. So to review, a pathway is a plan or a strategy that you believe will lead to a goal. And the reason you should try goal visualization is because when we are facing a daunting task, and we all know this, the hardest part is usually getting started. I know my high school students moan and groan on a daily basis about my assignments, but once they begin, they realize it's not that bad and it is not mere busy work, and often the assignment has more to offer them than what they assumed and they carry whatever it is into their life or take transferable skills into another domain of their life. So to help get over this initial hurdle, this particular exercise asks you to describe a short-term goal and to visualize steps you will take to achieve it. In the process, it helps to build your confidence that you will be able to reach that goal. And reminder from earlier, a goal can be anything that an individual wants to get, do, be, accomplish, or experience, and such goals be attainable, which is a crucial element when it comes to being motivated to pursue the goal or hope that the goal will actually and eventually be attained. And having confidence in your ability to achieve your goals is a key component of optimism, which research links to greater health and happiness, including lower rates of depression, a better ability to cope with stress, and more relationship satisfaction. So how to do this goal visualization exercise from the Greater Good Science Center? Their step one is to identify one goal you would like to achieve in the next day or two and briefly describe it in writing. 
You may want to pause the podcast and write down a response, or if you are not able to do so in this moment, I, of course, will leave a link in the show notes under the resources tab at thelemontreecoaching.com, or you can find it and other articles and valuable resources on the Greater Good Science Center website at greatergood.berkeley.edu. Whatever you write down as your goal, be sure it is realistic and not too time-consuming for this exercise. Some examples may include organizing the hall closet rather than organizing the entire house. Also, be sure your goal is something that is important to you. Perhaps spending more time with the kids rather than binge watching an entire season of your favorite show. When you're ready, move on to step number two. To help you visualize how you will go about accomplishing this goal, describe in writing the steps that you will take to get there. For example, if your goal is to organize the hall closet, the following are the steps that you might take to achieve it. Schedule one hour in the evening tonight that you will devote to cleaning. Note this is a timely and actionable step. Next, turn off your cell phone or other distracting devices. Put on some comfy clothes or clothes that will help in accomplishing the task. Turn on some upbeat music. My mom seems to enjoy Uptown Funk by Bruno Mars. Uh, Break down the job into smaller tasks or chunks. For instance, make taking everything out of the closet one small task that you can accomplish, then the next task, sweep the floor, and so on until completion. And an important thing the Greater Good Science Center recommends to keep in mind is that it's okay if you don't do everything perfectly or complete the entire task. So at this time, you may want to pause the podcast and write down the steps that you will take to accomplish your goal. Remember to break down the whole task into smaller subtasks, which will give you a sense of accomplishment as you complete each one, and then return to the podcast when you're ready. The Greater Good Science Center recommends that you try this practice of goal visualization 10 minutes daily for three weeks. And why does this exercise work? The greater good says this exercise makes goals feel attainable and manageable. And when you believe that you will be successful at something, it encourages you to work harder towards achieving that goal. And this greater effort increases the chance that you will actually succeed. Plus, the more you succeed, the more confident you will become about future goals. So you can see how this exercise is applicable to other domains of your life, important for young adults, anyone really, and how this practice can build personal resilience. And remember to be kind to yourself and not get down on yourself if you don't succeed right away or perform perfectly. Remember the iceberg illusion from a prior episode of this podcast? We often get caught up being mesmerized by other people's success, which appears to be instantaneous, when in reality we don't see all of the stages of learning and individual growth and transformation that the individual goes through to arrive at the success. We don't see all of the mistakes, the getting knocked down and getting back up, or readjusting the trajectory, which are all parts of learning, growth mindset, and resilience that get us to success or goal attainment. And by regularly repeating exercises like the goal visualization exercise, you may feel greater confidence in your ability to achieve important goals in your life, and this can have a significant impact on your general mood and help you develop a more optimistic mindset. 
And there are several other exercises that can be explored in coaching. And feel free to reach out if you have any questions. You can find a variety of ways to contact me at thelemontreecoaching.com. Okay, so there you have it. In this episode, we talked about the letdown effect, hope and optimism, sleep and resilience. And if you'd like some daily inspiration, you can also follow me on Instagram at the Lemon Tree Coaching. I post inspirational quotes that I've encountered along the way and simply want to share them with you. And if you like my show, please share with a friend and follow or subscribe wherever you are listening so you don't miss an episode. And teachers, you may also want to check out The Lemon Tree by AKS on TPT, formerly known as Teachers Pay Teachers. I'm constantly adding resources and lessons each week, several of which I mention on the podcast. For instance, the stop method and rain printouts are now available as a free download, as well as the introductory assignment to human strengths. So again, check it out on TPT. My shop name is The Lemon Tree by AKS. You can also find the link in the show notes at thelemontreecoaching.com under the resources tab, as well as some other free resources. And once again, this is Dr. Allison Sukamelli saying it's been a pleasure sharing this space with you. And until next time, have fun, be safe.